0: Hey gang, just a quick public service announcement from the SRPC, that's the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. They have a couple of interesting events coming up that I think are quite relevant to rural and remote practitioners, whether you're Canadian or otherwise. The first one is in January 18th through 20th, and it is the Rural Surgical Skills Update for ESS and OSS Family Physicians. ESS is Enhanced Surgical Skills, that's family physicians that take an extra year of training in Canada and they learn to do C-sections and appendixes and hernias and other straightforward low-risk procedures. And the OSS is Obstetric Surgical Skills, so that's a similar sort of thing but just focuses on the OB side of things, so DNCs and C-sections and I'm sure other things that I don't really understand because I spend my time on the other side of the curtain. So that's the first event. The second event is the 30th Annual Rural and Remote Medicine Course, and that is in Niagara Falls, Ontario, from April 20th to 22nd, 2023, and the official tagline there is that the SRPC's Rural and Remote Medicine Course has become one of the world's most well-attended rural medicine conferences. It attracts nearly 1,000 attendees from across Canada and international participants each year. It offers rural and remote physicians opportunities to gain and upgrade vital skills, exchange knowledge, develop their professional and social networks, and compare notes on the evolving field of rural medical practice. The event is open to allied healthcare professionals as well, medical students, and residents. And if you want to check out more about that, you can just go to srpc.ca. Okay, on with the show. Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds Podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is episode L. As in 50. As in Roman numerals. Yeah, okay, I thought it was clever back in episode 10. I mean X. Anyway, here we are, 50 episodes of this madness. Who would have thought? In this episode, we're going to get into some interesting rural recess cases, but first I'm going to take a couple of minutes to celebrate this milestone to offer some big thank yous, and to provide you, our listeners, with an overview of where this podcast is headed from here. So 50 episodes, it's a big milestone for the podcast, but I'll venture to say it's also a big milestone for rural resuscitation. Because let's face it, resuscitation in a rural, remote, or resource-limited setting is very different than tertiary-level and academic resuscitation. And while there are lots of resources for our well-developed academic emergency medicine Big Brother, with its many podcasts and thousands of RCTs, rural resuscitationists, for the most part, are left to fend for themselves by extrapolating from the mainstream literature and teaching. So I truly hope, 50 episodes into this, that our listeners and their patients are benefiting from the R&R Rounds podcast. Now for the thank yous. There are so many people that have contributed so far, both in front of a microphone and behind the scenes, that I don't have enough time to name them all here. But those of you who have contributed by sharing a case or recommending the podcast to a colleague or who have offered some words of support or other feedback, you know who you are and thank you. In particular, I'd like to thank by name, Drs. Noor Katib, Colton Lewis, and Dave Collins for contributing some fantastic content so far as well as our editor, Dr. Logan Haynes, and show notes creators, Heather Lean and Dr. Abir Islam. A big thanks to the others who have hopped on a microphone to share their interesting rural cases, and a huge thanks to those listeners who have taken the time to contact us to offer words of support and suggestions. So if you're listening and you're enjoying what you're hearing, please drop us a line. Go to podcast.rnrrounds.ca and hit that contact button, or you can email me directly. Jay Wallace at RNRrounds.ca. And lastly, as for the future of the RR Rounds podcast, I've committed to at least another 50 episodes. That's right, over the next couple of years we'll work our way towards episode C. Now, if you like that idea and would like to help it come to fruition, then please support us. Creating a single podcast episode takes a fair bit of time, but many hands make light work. And I'll tell you from where I'm sitting, every little bit helps. If you're a medical student or a resident or a registrar, or even if you're someone looking to get into the medical profession, we would love to find you a way to contribute and, of course, offer you some experience that looks great on your CV as well. Contributions with the podcast can be as small as you want. We can find one-off projects that take as little as one hour of your time, or they can be much larger on an ongoing but flexible schedule. And, of course, we're looking for interesting cases as well. And now I'm talking to you staff-level physicians, though we're happy to hear from residents and registrars with interesting cases too. The great thing about the internet is that we can record an interview from anywhere in the world with a reliable internet connection. So far, all of our cases have been from Canada and the United States, but I would love to see that change. I mean, secretly, I would love to be able to say that we've hosted an interesting case from every continent in the world, though I admit Antarctica might be a bit of a challenge. So come on, Argentina, Australia, Germany, Israel, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa. We see you and many, many other countries downloading episodes as well. So please, if you're a regular listener and you have an interesting case, drop me a note and let us interview you about an interesting resource-limited case that you've had. Okay, that's enough of the housekeeping for now. But seriously, 50 episodes. Come on, that's huge. Thanks to all of you for listening and continuing to support this free open access medical education podcast. Now I promised a case, so let's get into that. So for the next few episodes, we're going to try to put together a mini-series on the topic of disproportionate pain. This was one of those headline moments during my emergency medicine training where if I could take an entire year of learning and boil it down, this is one of the key takeaway points that is left in the bottom of the pan. As physicians, we need to be and very, very wary of patients that are reporting correction and to not take medication when you're on the, verge of, of Crushing, pain, you're on the verge of vomiting or pain, which is disproportionate to our examination findings, because these are the patients who often have something catastrophic that may otherwise be completely invisible to our approach to clinical diagnosis in emergency medicine. Now, as luck would have it, I had two of these types of patients on a single weekend a couple of months back. I think we have enough time to go over the first case today. So this was an 82 year old man who was on holiday from the next province over and he presented to our emergency department in Fort St. Nowhere with 48 hours of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. He thinks that he had eaten some bad eggs at the outset. His vital signs are normal and he has some non-specific subjective tenderness all over his belly. So we treat him like food poisoning. I give him a little ondansetron, in this case I am, and then make him NPO for 30 minutes. Now I am a huge proponent of avoiding IVs whenever possible, and vomiting people who come to the emergency department for a magical IV are the perfect example of the type of person who I try and avoid IVs on. Instead, I wait 30 minutes for the ondansetron dose to resolve the nausea, then we begin the ORT, that is oral rehydration therapy. I give the patient a 5 milliliter syringe and a glass of water and I tell them one syringe every five minutes, no more, for the first half hour. Then my usual pathway, after they've tolerated about 30 minutes of my ORT, is to send them home with their syringe and some education about how to manage nausea, that is to not drink water when you're feeling nauseous, and to not take medication when you're on the verge of vomiting, but rather to make yourself NPO, let any vomiting that's going to happen, happen, and then take the medication, and then after half an hour restart the ORT. I find this approach works about 99% of the time for people who present with nausea and vomiting to emergency. Now a few patients are horrified to learn they're not getting their magical poison water IV mixture, but most are very happy and hopefully are better equipped to manage next time. So in the case of this elderly fellow, the Ondansetron ORT combo resolved his nausea and vomiting, but he's still complaining of abdominal pain. Now I have to admit, initially I hadn't thought too much about the nonspecific belly pain because many people report that after prolonged vomiting. However, typically that pain has greatly improved or resolved after the 60 minutes of treatment that I just described. But this fellow's pain had not improved very much. He is still clinically tender, perhaps more so in the epigastrium now. Hmm. Now at this point, it wouldn't be too difficult to send him home with some acetaminophen or a PPI like pantoprazole, and ask him to come back if it worsens. But in my experience, that would not be the best thing to do because this is where the surprise finding of disproportionate pain comes in. And to be clear, he's not complaining of 11 out of 10 peritonetic pain. This was simply a tender epigastrium, perhaps four out of 10. So here's where I begin to rethink the diagnosis because while it may yet be a benign pain due to food poisoning or something, there's also the possibility that something else is going on in the background. So round two, I order one gram of acetaminophen. Peptic ulcer disease may also be on the table, and so I don't want to give him an NSAID, so we leave that out for now. I perform a bedside ultrasound, ruling out a AAA because he's the right age and gender, we want to make sure we rule that out. I rule out free fluid, and I check for signs of pancreatitis. Everything looks good. I also order some blood work at this point, casting a wide net. A CBC, electrolytes, kidney function, liver function, a lipase, and because he's old and you don't wanna miss anything, a venous blood gas and lactate. If anything, the pain worsens over the next half hour, and so I order my next favorite go-to medication for pain, which I deem to be legit, and that is hydromorphone one to two milligrams orally. His pain comes down over the next half hour, but only to about a two out of 10, despite a fairly generous dose of hydromorphone. His blood work comes back around this point, and there isn't too much to see. The white count is high normal at 10.9, Nothing too exciting. Kidney function is slightly reduced with a GFR of 48, but as I said he's from out of province, so I can't look up his past records. He doesn't know of any history of kidney disease, so perhaps there's an acute renal injury due to dehydration from vomiting. His liver and pancreas look normal. The venous blood gas is as normal as a VBG ever is, excluding any acidosis or alkalosis in this case but his lactate is up slightly at 3.4, where the normal cutoff is 2.2. So that's thoroughly nonspecific. Vomiting with dehydration and possible acute renal injury in an 80-year-old could certainly fit all of this. A partial ileus could very well account for the lack of full-grown bowel obstruction symptoms, yet be the trigger for the vomiting and sequela. A bit of a bump in lactate due to the stress and some reduced clearance, possibly? The only fly in the ointment of this diagnosis is the seemingly higher level of pain than I would have expected, but it wasn't excruciating levels of pain either. So at this point, is a CT scan warranted? Well if you work in Big Smokington and you have 100 patients in the waiting room who need the bed, maybe it is. But from a medical standpoint, that's a pretty weak indication for a CT if you ask me. Besides, in this instance of Fort St. Nowhere, the closest CT scanner is 120 kilometers away and logistically speaking, that means a six hour affair while you're also tying up a precious ambulance resource. So in discussion with the patient, in the absence of a good indication for CT and rather large rigmarole to obtain it, we decided together for a brief period of observation overnight. So I admit him and he's made NPO and he gets his IV, not because he came to the ER with vomiting, but because of the possibility of ileus as well as a possible acute renal injury. I order repeat blood work in the morning, about seven hours later, and I order him some generous pain meds overnight. So morning comes round, I didn't get called, and he reports that the night wasn't too bad. Another dose of ondansetron overnight, but no vomiting. He took a surprising four milligrams of hydromorphone at various points over the night, but slept well and has little pain when I see him at morning rounds. So again, this persistent hint of disproportionate pain is lingering in the air. But shortly before I see him, his nurse informs me that he's had an episode of coffee ground emesis. Oh dear. So I go and talk to him about the concern with digested blood, and he tells me he's convinced it was not blood, but rather it was digested blueberries that he ate yesterday at lunch that had now come back up. Digested blueberries. Well, that's a new one. So we take a sample of the vomitus and smear it on a fecal occult blood card, and guess what? it wasn't blueberries. So I go and talk to him about the concern with digested blood. And now we have a convincing indication for a CT. His pain remains localized to the epigastrium, he is not peritonitic. On further questioning, he has had some night sweats over the past month, and maybe some weight loss. Honestly, I'm more worried about a gastric cancer or something like that at this point. In my mind, a perforated ulcer would be peritonitic by this point, And with such a highly localized pain, I'm not particularly worried about a widespread bowel issue like colitis or obstruction, which doesn't fit the clinical picture anyway. Ischemic bowel is pretty rare, but it can be localized, and so that's on the differential as well. At any rate, with failure to improve overnight, and now signs of GI badness, it's time for a CT abdo with contrast. And ironically, the patient is now trying to negotiate with me. Well, we're supposed to be heading home to, insert name of city here, and that's about a 15 hour drive. And doctor, I'm feeling pretty good right now. So maybe I can head home and get checked out there? Mmm, no. You and your wife are in your 80s. You have an unexplained epigastric pain with metabolic changes. You're on a big dose of hydromorphone right now. And you want to drive 15 hours on some of the most precarious roads in Canada? Happily, he saw reason and decided to go to the closest tertiary care for his CT and was diagnosed with ischemic bowel and received urgent general surgery consultation. So, disproportionate pain. Nothing good ever comes from disproportionate pain. So when you encounter it, keep your eyes wide open and be very calculating in your next steps. In this case, would it have been wrong to get that CT the night before, simply on the basis of disproportionate pain without explanation? No, it wouldn't have been wrong and lots of docs would have done it, particularly if this had been in an emergency department with a CT scanner schooled up next door. but. I don't think it would have been the right choice either. At that early hour in the presentation, the pretest probability of a surgical pathology with normal vital signs and reassuring labs was quite low. Looking at Medscape for acute mesenteric ischemia, they're quoting the overall prevalence of acute mesenteric ischemia is 0.1% of hospital admissions. So we're talking one in a thousand risk that this man simply because we're admitting him to hospital for abdominal pain could be an acute mesenteric ischemia. Now counterbalance that with the risk of causing cancer with a CT scan and on xrayrisk.com his risk is quoted at a one in 3400 risk of cancer. So we're talking about one in 1000 versus one in 3400 for the risk of the CT scan. So playing a purely statistical game, we're in roughly the same ballpark. I mean, we're talking about one chance in 3,000 versus three chances in 3,000. Neither of those are particularly strong numbers to justify a black and white decision. On the other hand, there is more risk associated with a six-hour transfer in the middle of the night in an 82-year-old We're talking about the transport risk itself. We're talking about the utilization of the resources to take that responding ambulance off of the road. We're talking about the effect of putting an 82-year-old brain that's already in acute renal failure through the stress of a six-hour trip away from his wife and in abnormal surroundings. It's a muddy picture. And so ultimately, I think you could go either way on this one. It wouldn't be unreasonable to order that CT scan right from the get-go. I don't think it was unreasonable to wait for a little bit of further evidence to declare itself one way or the other before you make that decision. And I have to admit, I am a hesitant CT scan orderer. I have to have a pretty clear reason in my mind for ordering a CT scan. Whereas other physicians, particularly those who are starting out in their careers, often have an extremely low threshold to order that CT. Unexplained abdominal pain, hey, let's get a CT abdo. And that's why we see certain patients who may be only 30 years old and who have had eight CT abdos by that point. Which, by the way, again, according to xrayrisk.com, is about a 1 in 50 chance of lifelong cancer as a result of those eight CT scans at such a tender age. Anyway, regardless of which side of the argument you fall on, whether you would side with me and admit and wait for a little bit stronger evidence, say a GI bleed or a failure for the lactate to resolve in the repeat blood work in the morning, or whether you would have ordered that knee-jerk CT scan at the outset. The most important thing is that we keep our eyes on this particular patient, we don't discharge him, and we continue to assess until the diagnosis is made. Going back to that e-medicine article, It says under presentation, the most important finding is pain that is disproportionate to physical examination findings. Typically pain is moderate to severe, diffuse, non-localized, constant, and sometimes colicky. So basically every abdo pain that walks in through your department. And for me, this is what makes mesenteric ischemia such a pain in the butt, especially in Fort St. Nowhere, because we really have nothing clinically to hang our hat on. And again, statistically, for every 1,000 patients that you admit with abdominal pain, one is going to have mesenteric ischemia. So if you scan them all, even if they're all 82-year-old men, you're almost as likely to cause one case of cancer as you are to identify that one in 1,000 case of mesenteric ischemia. Not to mention the cost of 999 CT scans, both financially and in terms of the logistics of moving these patients 120 kilometers or whatever distance to that closest scanner. Again, the real take-home for me in this particular case, and for every disproportionate pain case, is don't dismiss these. This was an 82-year-old man who was very pleasant, who was quite sharp who wanted to drive himself 15 hours through the mountains back home. And he probably would have done so if I hadn't put my foot down and said no. And that was after he had an upper GI bleed, not even before when he had relatively mild symptoms the evening before. There is a relatively small collection of catastrophic diagnoses in medicine that only present with disproportionate pain. And so whenever you hear those words, whenever you recognize that your patient has pain in excess of what you would anticipate, put your antenna up, slow down, and think very, very carefully about what your next steps should be. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that. As I say, we're going to try and put together a small collection of cases with disproportionate pain for your listening pleasure. And just a final reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, do us a solid, hop on the website and send us a note and let us know what you think and what we could do to make it even better. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you think you might have an extra hour or two lying around and would like to contribute, please let us know. Many hands make light work and it would be fantastic if we could together as a community take this podcast and turn it into something really useful that runs for a long, long time. Far beyond episode C, who knows, maybe even episode M. Okay gang, that's it for this episode. We'll catch you on the next one. The RR Rounds Podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.